This is Tasting Together. Toronto's News, today's talk. 640 Toronto. It's Saturday, it's 3 p.m. Wait, no, it's not 3 p.m. It's 5 p.m. <laughs> and I'm uh, Andre Pru. And I'm Roki Tong. And Andre, I think you might have given away why <laughs> you clearly do not know what time it is in Toronto. Oh, man, it's been a nightmare all week. Um, as I've mentioned on the show many times, I was raised in Saskatchewan and I decided to uh, celebrate my 40th birthday in Saskatchewan with my family. And that was the big yesterday. four zero. <laughs> I feel old now. Well, I'm sure there's many people out there who are saying that they're hitting a new renaissance when they turn 40 as opposed to getting older. <laughs> you know, I'm on board with that. I, I think one of my favorite like stories from, I guess, recent history was one of my favorite comedians, Leslie Jones, who didn't even make it onto Saturday Night Live until she was past 40 and really seems to have like hit a bit of a stride. I love following her on social media to see, see what she says. And it's one of the things where I'm not a big fan of the Olympics. I know this is completely tangent and off topic of a food and drinks show but the way she covers the olympics is always quite hilarious i mean to be fair i remember when i was like a young actor you know hot-blooded in the <laughs> industry always saying i need to make it before i turn 25 or i've failed in life and everyone would always remind me that a lot of the big actors out there didn't hit their stride to but till their 40s so there's I'm waiting hope. to turn 40 so I can hit my new renaissance and my new golden age. There's hope for me. There's hope for me. I guess that's the case. But I, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, being in Saskatchewan just because um, I've spent... I wanted to talk about what you did for your birthday. Oh, well, I mean, they're kind of tied together. For, for my birthday, I didn't do anything like over the top fancy, but it was just one of these things where like whenever I come back to Saskatchewan, we're at the point I moved away over 15 years ago. And, you know, this is kind of a weird trip because like it really doesn't feel like home anymore like mm. my parents moved out of their child my childhood home a couple of years ago and my brother has has recently upgraded to like a new palace in the south end of regina that i'm recording this from in one of his many living rooms i'm not at all jealous but i mean don't, anyone sitting in the car or listening to this next to their smart speaker that are thinking about buying a house in toronto or in the greater toronto area do not look up real estate prices in regina it will make you sad um, but you know, I find myself finding comfort in a lot of the places that I frequented before I moved away. So I celebrated my birthday at what I think is one of the best and one of the OG brew pubs in Canada. And that's Bushwhacker. And I think anyone who's driven through Regina or any musician who's toured Regina is familiar with this place. And it has been open for a really long time. And I remember frequenting this place while I was in university studying music. And the beer was always good. But it's kind of cool to see how history has come around on a place like Bushwhacker. Because when I started visiting it when I turned 19 back in 2002, I had to do some quick math in my head there. When did I turn 19? Anyways, um, I always remember the beer being great at Bushwhacker, but it was still like part of the movement of like there were a lot of like brew pubs kind of trying to get going, but the quality was all over the place. And Bushwhacker's been around so long, it's just sort of like they've grown into this craft beer movement. It was just like, guys, we've been here forever. Our beers have always been good. We were just waiting for you. I wonder if a lot of the very, very OG craft brewery places never even can, like, it, it, it wasn't a movement as much as, hey, we just make beer and it's delicious and you just, when you, when whoever's local to that city or region just knows them as the local place that makes a unique beer. But, you, and then it's interesting because the, I almost feel like the craft beer movement 
it's very different than just craft beer that has existed for ages. Because we have one of those in our hometown in Kitchener, Waterloo as well. There's a place called the Hoother Hotel. Oh, yeah. And it's an institution in Uptown Waterloo. And they also had their own beer. And they've had their beer since, you know, as long as I can remember being able to enjoy a beer. But back then, we never really called it craft beer. But of course, it is craft beer because it is made by a small space and it's just kind of unique to that area and it's delicious and you can't really buy it outside of the region, but it doesn't necessarily have the same, I guess, like shiny, like affiliation to that terminology of the craft beer movement, if that makes any sense. And I feel like what you're describing of Bushwhackers like the same. Yeah, it totally is. And I mean, but it's also fascinating to just see and, and like really reflect on like different people with goals when they set up a business, right? Because like, I remember Mill Street when it was in the distillery district and very much like the cool kid in town in Toronto. And it seemed to like grow into this massive behemoth essentially overnight. And it's just like, you know, I, I on one hand, I get that we have a bad habit in Toronto of like when something becomes cool, take tearing it down a little bit. But, you know, Mill Street, Mill Street grew well past what I think most people would consider craft beer so fast it's like i i don't even know if if it has enough of a following to have that nostalgia factor from when it was small you know interesting it it almost reminds me of a conversation that we once had about the size of craft breweries and like me describing how certain craft breweries i wouldn't even call craft microbrewery size and you argue that it still was but i think um the end the the i think what i'm coming to the conclusion of all this is that you should bring me back some bushwhacker because as a craft beer lover i want to have some i will and do you that can't tell me yeah you can't tell me all these nice things without actually bringing it back and i haven't stepped foot in saskatchewan not even regina not saskatchewan since <laughs> yes true 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 come someday but i haven't stepped foot since i was 13 so i know nothing okay. about saskatchewan anymore but you have to tell me what else you've been enjoying while uh, at home with your family. Well, the other one that I don't think a lot of people know about is we've talked about the regionality of pizza on this show before and whether or not Toronto really has its signature style of pizza because there's so many regions that do. And I know I've talked a little bit about prairie-style pizza, but it bears repeating. Um, I was actually just reminiscing about this because there was, back in 2015, so like, oh my gosh, it's almost 10 years ago now, uh, there's a shop, there was a shop in Toronto called Pizza Thick that had opened up and it prided itself on making Regina style pizza. Now, what is Regina style pizza? You may ask. It is pizza that is so flat. You can still see it a week later. If it ran down the street. I don't even know what to say to that. Like that's such a good, good, (laughs) a good, bad joke, but I mean, Oh my gosh. Yes. Okay. You can see your dog run away for three days. That's what it's like being out here. Um, Prairie style pizza is, is kind of like Chicago style. Like it's thick crust, thick, chewy crust, a little bit greasy, loaded with toppings and cheese. And there is, I guess, some small local debate and it's a friendly debate whether Western pizza or Houston pizza makes the best style. And I guess that's the other fun thing is Regina's big Regina style pizza chain is called Houston pizza, even though it has nothing to do with Houston or Texas or anything like that. It just interesting. It just happens to be called Houston Pizza, but yeah, that's basically Regina style pizza. If you guys go to my Instagram at Andre Wine Review, you'll see. Um, I've I think I've had uh, Regina style pizza once. Just follow my adventures while I'm on this trip. I'll, I'll be having it at least one other time before I head back home. So the question is, which one's your favorite? Houston Pizza, hands down. Ooh. And I think it's just frankly. Oh, yeah. Not even a debate. 
Uh, I mean, like if Western Pizza shows up, I'm certainly not going to complain. But I, I think it just comes down to like the branding and the packaging. I like the Houston Pizza packaging. And then the other thing too is, it's a secret that some people from Saskatchewan know is that Houston Pizza will actually par-cook pizza for you, vac-seal it, so you can bring it home with you. My last time home from Saskatchewan back in 2021, I brought two all-dressed pizzas, which is the signature of Houston Pizza, par-cooked, uh, to share with uh, with some friends. And I'm not going to be doing that again. Because even oh, though it's a... I was waiting for you to tell me that you were also going to bring me back pizza to enjoy with Bushwhacker beer. But it just doesn't travel well. Uh, the beer travels well. Oh, and here's another fun thing about the Bushwhacker beer is the way they sell it in bulk is it comes in a two liter plastic pop bottle. Okay. That's that's their, their, but I mean, it's the other thing too, is it's just like, it really emphasizes that the beer needs to be consumed fresh. Cause like beer in cans and beer in bottles with like the crown cap on it. Like sometimes that'll sit in the back of the fridge for a little while. No, when you're bringing home a two liter jug of pop of beer, you got to drink that right away. Yeah. Or you got to freeze it. Okay. So I'm going to be drinking pop style beer and no pizza because apparently it doesn't travel well that's is right. my little saskatchewan through andre that's right and i mean while i am on vacation here uh as we end up this segment here it is time to start thinking about heading back to school so if you're a parent you might want to stick around for the next segment because maroki are going to reminisce a little bit about back to school lunches and see if maybe we can come up with some ideas to keep your kids a little bit more interested in what they're bringing in their brown bags this year I'm already thinking about those little build your pizza lunchables that, that I used to trade my friends for in grade school. So stick around. We'll be back shortly right after the break on 640 Toronto. This is Tasting Together. Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Here on Tasting Together, I'm Roki Tong, along with my co-host Andre Pru, want to dive into the segment to explore what kids are going to be putting in their lunches this September. And I actually have no clue, Andre. I have no clue. <laughs> you know, it's one of my favorite things, though, that we've really kind of discovered on this show is talking about our lived experiences, where I think the stuff you were bringing for lunches as a young student were different than what I was bringing as a young student out on the wild prairies of Saskatchewan. I had... Plenty of tuna and egg salad sandwiches in my brown bag every day. My mother definitely packed me a lot of thermos lunches, usually some sort of rice dish on the bottom. And um, I don't know how people's like thermoses are these days, but I'm assuming if they're all Yeti thermoses, they're all finangled and high tech and actually keep the heat in. Um, my thermoses didn't. And I think it got to the point where my mom would often use the top compartment to just fill with hot water. Okay. To try and keep the food products on the bottom warm. And so my lunch bag was often wet because it leaked as well. Oh, that that just doesn't sound very pleasant. Ugh. No. And, <laughs> and, you, know, and you know, for me, I, I guess the one thing too. So like my mom is a retired registered nurse. And as a result, like our lunches, I think we're always a tad bit on the healthier side, like fresh veggies or a fresh piece of fruit. Oh, mine was so healthy. I remember I always <laughs> wanted candy. Like, That's all it. The kids. I, I was not allowed to have fruit by the foot. I was not allowed to have so delicious. If anyone wants that blast from the past, and I really wanted so delicious. Or when I finally convinced my mom to give them to me or buy them for me, I should say, she would include two gummies in my lunch. Like I would get two. <laughs> so there was definitely a lot of trading. And I I, yeah. and I think we brought about, we brought this up on a previous segment. Miss, like raw Mr. Noodles was totally a thing back in our day um, or Lunchables. And there was definitely times where I was trading kids in my class uh, for, for lunches. And I'll say there was nothing in my lunchbox that I was entertaining to them or I yeah. often traded like help with math homework. 
Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> so you at least had like tangible, tangible skills that you could trade. But I was very much in the same boat where I have all these friends who are nostalgic for Dunkaroos, which apparently are oh. back. If you go to the grocery store, you can get Dunkaroos. I don't have nostalgia for Dunkaroos because I never had Dunkaroos growing up. It was one of those things my mom just never bought them. And you know, it's one of these things where, you know, to be fair and to be fair to my mother, like I have very fond memories of my many a tuna and egg salad sandwiches. And usually a few times a year, even at my work from home situation from, from my studio, like I still am more than happy to make myself the odd tuna and egg salad sandwich. But in the moment, I felt like I was missing out. Yeah, I know. It's like the things that we only appreciate as an adult as opposed to when we were children. But since uh, I think you and I are a little bit out of touch for what <laughs> you are packing in the lunch and Spencer's a little too young to be considered a student yes. in any way, shape or form, you managed to wrangle some expert opinions on what uh, children should be having in their lunches or making their parents happy. <laughs> yes. If you're a parent listening to the show right now, pay attention. We have two expert guests join us to talk about what it is they're hoping are going to be in their lunches this year. What's your favorite thing that your mom packs you for lunch? Pizza. What kind of pizza? Um, she's never packed me pepperoni cheese with um pineapple but i've always wanted to try that that is my nephew kylan so kylan prue going into grade two this year is hoping for more pepperoni pizza with pineapple in his lunches this year i like that we have a fellow hawaiian lover in our lives <laughs> i know i don't even understand why it's a, it's a debate i think i think that's something we'll have to explore on a later at a later date where we get someone from uh, italy on to talk about pineapple on pizza uh i managed to wrangle another guest and yes full disclosure this is my nephew tristan who is going into grade five about what he is hoping will appear in his lunch what's your favorite thing to take for lunch that your mom packs for you at school uh sushi your mom packs you sushi yes what kind of sushi does your mom pack you? Um, dynamite rolls. California rolls. I'm sure you can hear from my response when he said sushi that that was not what I was expecting him to say. That's a posh life, man. No kidding. That's a posh life. I, you know what? I really wish. So, you know, I, I went backcountry portaging a little over a week ago and my friend uh, had brought his nine-year-old daughter on the trip and shout out to my friend Karen because she was saying how she listened to the radio show and I said I'd shout her out and this is a good segue <laughs> as any, but their daughter, I should have asked her what she ate because one of the things I, I brought them some trail mix on the trip and she looked at me and said, um, it has too much sugar in it and that was not something i expected to come out of the mouth of a nine-year-old no i think that lunches have just gotten a little bit more sophisticated than when you and i were in school i don't know whether that's necessarily good or a bad thing because like my brother and uh his wife so my boy like the my nephew's mother who i, I know they all take hand in the meal preparations in this house but i have a hard time picturing gibber crystal in the kitchen you know with their sushi mat rolling up dynamite rolls <laughs> on the regular for tristan to take in his lunch i did have yeah. to double down because i know i mentioned nostalgia with fond nostalgia my love of tuna and egg salad which i thought was a staple especially for us white canadians who are, are still in elementary school this is what kylan had to say when i asked him about uh tuna and egg salad do you ever get egg salad or tuna in your lunch no why not it's gross so there we have it from the mouth of uh, our expert in grade two they're gross I needed a second opinion, so I went to Tristan as well. And uh, any guesses on whether or not Tristan has any love for egg salad or tuna? I want to say yes, but why, why do I have a feeling he's going to hate on it too? Let's run the clip. 
Does your mom still ever pack you tuna or egg salad sandwiches? Oh, no, no, no. Why, why not? Because they're gross. There we have it. We're 0 for 2 on tuna and egg salad. What why, is why wrong? Why do I feel like the older brother influenced the younger brother? <laughs> I actually like interviewed... They built a little coalition. To, <laughs> you know, they like did it off scene so they could make sure their mother and father never packed them those either of those dishes for their lunches. But I mean, that's it though. Like, like it, At least parents know. And I mean, it's, 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 it's the tough thing. It must be the tough thing as a parent where you need to balance budget and time and making sure that your kids are, are happy. And I mean, this is one thing where... Uh, like you said, I don't have to worry about my little baby Spencer going to school anytime soon, but this is definitely something I'm going to be thinking about more front of mind, seeing how this went down. You know, I'd be curious if different school systems have different lunch programs as well. So if you're a parent sending your kid back to school, as you can tell, like I'm childless and 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 Andre only has an infant right now. But if you call into the station at 416-966-7280, drop us a line and tell us like what you're packing your kids for school or whether your school has lunch programs, because this is something I would be interested in in knowing um is go like I, i'd be interested in knowing what's going on in the gta when it comes to feeding the young you know minds and bodies of the school because my my favorite thing you know when you're talking about packing things for lunches and budgets is i remember we had like milk programs at our school we had pete like you know occasionally like the pizza lunch fridays you could opt into um i went to a school uh, I, I did go to a private school for the last like four years of my grade school life but we used to have a thing called hot lunch where um, for a very short period of the year, we kind of got this like hot meal, which included, um, I guess, the secretary's famous alphabet uh, <laughs> vegetable soup that we would obsess over when it came. And I wonder if there's programs like that and if they're like, uh, if they kind of differ from school system to school system or even different regions. So that's 416-966-7280. 416-966-7280. I am right there with you. I'm curious about what the parents of today are bringing and helping their kids connect with healthy healthy and delicious foods while they're getting ready for school. And who knows, maybe we'll we'll learn something with, if someone gives us a call and uh, fills us in with what's going on. Because like, I have mm. just sad memories of the high school I went to in Regina that I believe at one point had something of a cafeteria, but it was just a row of vending machines. So plenty of choice of Ooh. Ruffles, plain chips, but we did have an ice cream machine. So ice cream sandwiches, I think were 50 cents or something. Oh man, last yeah, we said in the we last segment, like I'm old. I think we had a $2 French fry plate, which is full of nutrition. But, uh, you know, I guess when you're 13 or 14 and your metabolism is rampant, it doesn't matter as much. All right, completely changing gears here. We didn't start the top of the show off with this next topic because I wanted to make sure we had a little bit of time. And segment three is our longest segment for those of you keeping track at home. Toronto has announced their new iteration of the Michelin Guide for 2023. And I know I've been very critical of the guide this year. Do you have any guesses about whether or not I'm happy about what the new guide has to say? I feel like you must have a little bit of excitement if you want to bring it back up again. Or maybe you're just excited to talk about food and drink in the GTA after a few weeks of talking about instant foods and backcountry <laughs> camping foods. You just want to talk about the, the white tablecloth again a little bit. So stick around. We'll be back after the break on 640 Toronto. This is Tasting Together. You're listening to Tasting Together. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Welcome back. I am Andre Prue. 
And I'm Maroki Tong, and on this segment of Tasting Together, we're taking a pivot away from some of the conversations we've had in previous weeks, which range everything from instant TV dinners to backcountry dried food in a bag, children's Lunchables, and back to uh, what's hot and new in the Toronto area. That's right. I I know I've spent the past year being very critical of the Michelin or Michelin guide, and we had an off-air conversation about how do we pronounce this and i've decided i'm gonna stick with michelin <laughs> and i am here for it um but it was really exciting to see a, a 12 new additions to the michelin guide uh from the gta this year and i think uh one of them in particular was a glaring omission from last year's guide it was one of the reasons where um i was critical in just having questions about how they chose what got into the guide in the first place uh i do have to say i am pleased that there are no new restaurants that got stars and i still maintain that i don't think from what i've experienced in toronto that there is anything that is star worthy but i do need to pull out my pocket book and go for a couple of expensive meals to really put my money where my mouth is for some of those restaurants. Um, but uh, FK was one of the additions for uh, this year. Uh, formerly of, yeah. Yeah, formerly of Frank's Kitchen fame. I mean, this has always been like Frank, the, the chef at this restaurant, has always been extremely talented. Uh, I think a little bit underrated. And just the way he carries himself is understated as well. Like you've never seen frank in front of a camera or on the food network or anything like that and that was one of my first white tablecloth experiences in toronto at frank's kitchen and Mm. it just makes me happy to see see him recognized by the guide this year yeah i have a soft spot for them because the restaurant is right in my neighborhood and i've gotten to know frank and uh his partner sean over the last few months and I had the opportunity to dine there back in March and uh, I'd love to bring Eric back. I was there with a friend at the time and incredible experience. Love to see a gem of that quality in our neighborhood. And I think you're, you kind of hit the the nail on the head with the fact that they're not necessarily looking for the spotlight, right? Not only the fact that they changed their, you know, calling it FK versus Frank's kitchen. So they even took the name out of their restaurant. And it, it's kind of like FK is very much their like their own thing now right it's yeah. like it's it's an it's in a quieter neighborhood it's not a neighborhood known for lots of fine dining per se yes um sean really makes an opportunity to connect i know when the maple leaves were competing this year she actually opened up the bar side of the restaurant for people could come in for half priced oysters or half priced bubbly <laughs> while still maintaining the main dining room and she actually even said uh, you know, a lot of people say it's it's not a good thing to diversify too far out of your range of what you are for them being a fine dining restaurant. But she said, I actually love that I did this. And, and it shows that we can connect to, to different parts of the community while still maintaining the quality of food and maintaining a fine dining atmosphere. So I, I really love that. So FK is definitely one of the great ones yeah, and, that hit the list. And, uh, and, and for me, like it really just kind of hits, it hits the hammer on the head of what the guide is supposed to be like being mentioned in the guide in in itself means that you should be worth going out of your way to visit and and you describe the midtown neighborhood St. Clair West where they're located um really exactly is what it is it's not a hotbed of tourism in Toronto but if you are a tourist in Toronto and you pick up this guide it is worth getting your butt up to midtown to to check out this restaurant like it is a hidden yeah. gem and completely worthy of the guide 
Absolutely. I also love to see um, some other culture, cultural cuisines being put in it. Sunny's Chinese and Mimi Chinese, so two Chinese restaurants. Obviously, I have a particular bias to see more Chinese restaurants recognized. Um, it was interesting. I was in Chinatown recently, and I was checking out a spot, a new spot on College and Spadina called Bitter Melon, and they kind of do small plates. I, I've been saying since I've gone back there that they really have one of the golden standards for fusion cuisine or paying really strong homage to traditional flavors reinvented on a plate. But one of the things I spoke to the manager about was just how there's such a perception of what Chinese cuisine should be like. And a lot of it's like, should be big portions, very cheap. And I'm pretty sure I've not stepped foot in Mimi Chinese yet myself, but I know that's, it's the opposite of that. It's very fine dining. It's quite pricey. I think it's even hard to get a reservation in there these days, but I've, I, from the folks that I know who, who work there, the food is exceptional. And I just love that it got that shout out in the Michelin Guide. And Sunny's Chinese, another on my hit list that I need to get to as well in Kensington Market out of all places. And I've heard nothing but the most incredible food coming out of there. So um, those are two other solid recommendations that that Michelin put into their guide that well, I'm here for. Well, I want to make a, a pledge for you and I on the air for all the listeners to hear is I'm taking a look at the photos that were included in the announcement in the release from Michelin. And the steam fish from uh, Mimi Chinese just has me salivating. It's one of my favorite, beautiful, simple Chinese dishes that... Um, just when it's really well executed can be transcendent. So I think when I get back and settled in, you and I need to head to Mimi Chinese so you can help walk me through the menu and give your own stamp of approval uh, as to how great this food is. Yeah, I mean, there's so many other spots on the menu on the on this list that I would love to try <laughs> uh, BB's cuisine, which is uh, Filipino. And uh, I actually didn't realize that Chef Nui regular had another restaurant called Keen um, for a kind of like royal Thai cuisine. I love pie in Toronto. So if it's anything like pie, but perhaps uh, even like more elegant fare. I'm absolutely here for it. But, you know, it's interesting. Since we're talking about the Michelin Guide in, in restaurants that were missed and now have finally made it on, at, when I scrolled to the bottom of the list, I couldn't help but already have opinions on restaurants that have missed the list yet again that should be on the list. Uh, anyone that you want to shout out in particular? Well, I just took uh, my partner, Eric, to Richmond Station for a super belated birthday. I'd agree with that and completely. And it was funny because literally as we were sitting in the restaurant, Eric looks across the table at me and goes, were they on the Michelin guide? <laughs> and of course, I immediately pull up my phone to look. And the first article that appears is great restaurants that were missed by the Michelin guide. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, okay. So there is still room for some some more filler in the in the guide, but hopefully it continues to get better as uh, as the years progress and it continues to become an institution in Toronto. I was pleased to see v Vela on the list. Um, it's a restaurant that's been on my list of places to check out for quite some time just because uh, I know that they have a really, really great wine list. Um, it's actually kind of funny to see them in the Michelin Guide because um, if I see a place with a great wine list, the food to me is kind of inconsequential. And I know we joke that uh, sometimes I turn into a little bit of an Edgar McSnob on the fourth segment of this show, but that is completely the reason why it's been on my list. But uh, after seeing it in the guide, I had to pull up the menu and be like, oh, 
<laughs> this looks really great. Uh, I think there must be more to this place than just its really great wine list. Well, Vela is pretty new as well, yep. is it not? It's only within the last couple of years. I think that was what surprised me more than anything else is that I, I don't really know how many years a restaurant needs to be in business before it qualifies for the Michelin Guide. But um, that was probably one of the biggest things that surprised me. Like when I spoke about Bitter Melon, um, they're a fairly new restaurant as well. And they have some incredible food. And I'm surprised that doesn't hit in. And maybe maybe for a restaurant that's a bit more established, like Chef Nick Liu's Die Low. Yep. Like I think that's another one that might have been missed. But I perhaps, perhaps we're splitting hairs at this point. No, I actually don't think we are at all. Like that's another one where just like FK, like the, the FK was the first one for me when I saw that that wasn't in the list. And then seeing a place like Don Alfonso actually get a start. And it's just like... 10 times out of 10, I would go to FK before Don Alfonso, regardless of it being in Casa Loma. Uh, hearing that Nick Liu is not in the Michelin Guide as well is a glaring omission. So good job, Roki. I went into the segment hoping to have nice things to say about like the new additions to the guide, but <laughs> you've managed to turn me around full circle and once again point out that uh, the guide is still glaringly missing some other uh, really great restaurants in Toronto that probably should be celebrated in the guide. I think maybe what it says more than anything else is that we just have such an incredible um, diversity and so many options of, of amazing cuisine from all tiers, you know, like from kind of the hole in the wall in Kensington Market all the way up to white tablecloth dining that's available us in Toronto. And how lucky are we in just no list is ever going to be able to capture it all. Except tasting together, heard five o'clock on Saturday <laughs> on six forty Toronto. Coming up, oh my god, I love that. <laughs> coming up after the break, uh, Danny Longo actually uh, brought some really good questions off the air, and we're going to turn on the microphone to see what you and I think about accessories, gadgets, what you need to have on your bar cart. Yeah, do you put a cozy over your beer or do you use the wine icicle? Or are you one of those people who put ice cubes in your wine and that's Maroki's snob hat coming out? Stick around, we're here to discuss all those little gadgets with you on 640 Toronto. This is Tasting Together. Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Tasting Together. It is the time of the show where we are joined by Global Newsroom's Danny Longo. How's it going, Danny? Very good, thank you. How are you? Well, Danny, I'm having some travel envy because it sounds like you went on a wee road trip to a place that I've talked several years now about going back. And it's been a while since I've been there. So, Danny, you headed out west to Lake Erie North Shore. That is right. Yeah, I finally got a chance to visit. I've been meaning to go for years now. And uh, we uh, were free on a weekend, and we decided to uh, finally make the trip. And for us, we're already in the West End, so it was, it was about three hours. It wasn't too bad. It was, like, j almost just as far as uh, getting to Prince Edward County, and it was great. I have to say, uh, we visited probably five or six wineries, and each of them were really good. I was, I was surprised. You were surprised. Oh, well, you know what? I guess the, the first thing, just so we can, I guess, kind of clarify on timelines here. Uh, did you overnight it while you were there? We did not. We were oh, going wow. to. I know, I know. It was quite the, it was, it was a lot of driving for one day. Um, we were going to, but when we got there, we had kind of already done everything that we wanted to. The only thing we didn't do is uh, visit Pelee Island. 
Um, and the fairy. Well, you didn't do everything you wanted to. Right. Yeah. It gives me me a reason to go back. Right. Um, we, we visited all the wineries that we wanted to, and then we wanted to visit Peely Island as well. We were thinking of doing that the next day, but the fairies end after a certain time and it kind of, uh, put a hamper on our timeline. And then they didn't start until like 10 o'clock the next morning. So we were just like, eh, maybe we just drive home. You didn't want to get stuck on the Island. Yes, we did not want to get stuck on the island and uh, sleep on a bench. To be fair, I haven't I haven't been to the island myself. I I did go to the winery um, on a rainy day, out of all things, and I don't even remember. I wonder if they like closed the ferry early that day because it was raining. I can't remember now. Now the last time I went to um, Lake Erie North Shore was probably 2019, and because it is a four hour drive from Toronto. It definitely was a it is a place that I would have to overnight it, or at least I would choose to overnight it if I was sure. taking the road trip out there, which is the reason why I haven't actually gone back out there since then, because I haven't had the opportunity to actually book that time off. So maybe you should um, give us a, a, a recap of the different wineries you went to. So you said you went to about five wineries. Why don't you shout them out here for us? Okay, yeah. First, we went to a Cooper's Hawk uh, winery, yeah. which which was great um and we we did a flight there and we tried mostly um white <laughs> sorry i'm just laughing white. about i'm just laughing about the pun of you doing a flight at cooper's hawk <laughs> yes yes very very humorous um also th- like um at cooper's hawk um they had a, a lot of them actually a few of them had restaurants attached um i think they were bigger than what i was thinking um so obviously not quite at the scale of niagara um, but probably very comparable to many of the wineries in Prince Edward County. Well, and well, I guess let me ask. Like at Cooper's Hawk, is it looks like we're gonna have some time to go through some of these wineries hmm. in depth. I know for myself, like Cooper's Hawk, have um, the the owner Tom O'Brien has always been trying to push the envelope and and push the quality of the wines a little bit. Uh, how how did the wines hold up, and and what did you think of the wines while you were out there? I really enjoyed the wines. We ended up buying uh, a couple of bottles there, two or three. Um, I think we bought a white blend. Um, I can't remember the other wine we bought, but uh, I was very impressed. I was very impressed. Every wine we tried there was was good. So, you know, out of the four that we tried, we were we were impressed enough. And you know, I wanted to buy more, but uh, the money, the money is always the money. <laughs> you know, especially when you you're at your first winery, it's like I can't buy four bottles here. We're going to we're going to be visiting other wineries. So, oh wow, you shop I do for that wines. All the time. Yeah, you you shop for wines so differently than I do, Danny. I'm just like I'm only buying four bottles here. That means that I got to get another eight to fill up the case. Right. I I'm like a mix. Like if I really know the space, the spot well, and I'm basically going in to replenish the collection, I don't mind going hard right away but when i'm visiting somewhere new i know i was like that in the okanagan i was extremely careful in the first few wineries i went to out of the 16 i went to over four days and by the last day i just went like ham hock and was having crazy like bobo moments and at that point um a, a wine a winery owner friend had offered to ship the substantial amount of wines i'd acquired back to ontario and i was like excellent i'm starting from zero again but back to like yeah i didn't know that they did that okay that's good to know for next time <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 so okay so you went to cooper's hawk where else did you go we went to uh, Colchester Ridge Estate Winery, which is also known as Crew. Yes. And we really yes. liked it there. Um, it was one of those things that they were super busy. <laughs> um, and it was one of those things where I must have seen like three different uh, bridal 
shower or bachelorette parties there you know the woman wearing the uh, the veil and everything with a, a bunch of her girlfriends and one right by the vineyard they had a really nice setup there and a nice patio um and the food was good too we got a little bit of food there and the wine was great we we bought a rosé um that uh we really enjoyed we bought a couple of bottles of that and we also bought a riesling from there so great they they really impressed me and i really enjoyed the location as well yeah, I, I actually think that uh, Crew or Colchester Ridge is one of the um, most understated wineries in the province. There's some really great stuff coming out of there. And, uh, you know, I guess a bit of a fun fact, um, a few years ago on the pod- a podcast that I do, uh, hmm. I issued a challenge for a winery in the Lake Erie North Shore to make a Sauvignon Blanc, a Fumé style. So put it in a little bit of, of oak and... Crew is the winery that uh, that responded to that. So if you ever get a chance to see their walk the plank fumé blanc, that's something that uh, was a response to a challenge I issued to the wineries of Ontario. So yes, I'm patting myself on the back a little bit. It's, pr- <laughs> it's pretty good. Very nice. Yeah, I actually visited Crew. That was definitely on my list uh, years ago. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, but I went to Cooper's Hawk. But I definitely remember Crew because their wines did stand out for me as well. So we're on the same page for that. Where else, Danny? We went to okay. This one's a this one's a bit of a mouthful, and I, I specifically asked the people at the winery, "How do you pronounce this winery?" And it, it was, <laughs> I think they said Musedre. Yes, Musedre Vineyards. Yes, and uh, <laughs> it was that place was a lot of fun as well. And again, you know, it looks like a family-owned winery. I actually talked to the owner. He says, you know, he's been running the place for about fifteen years, and it's a total family affair. It's literally their house. <laughs> yeah. And the basement is the wine shop. So, and out, out back, they have a very large, like kind of pavilion style um, patio and it's covered and they have, you know, the wood, uh, the stone baked oven and we had some pizza and the pizza was delicious. And the wine was also really good as well. Did they have goats? They did have goats. Ah, they had goats yeah. and chickens and chickens. Yeah. That's one of my favorite things about visiting the winery is you get to pet a goat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. And then uh, on our way back, we visited those three. And on our way back, I think we hit Oxley and Viewpoint Estates, which was a beautiful estate right on the water. Um, they were actually holding an event when we were there. And there was a band playing, tons of people there. It was a really good time. Any highlights from those two wineries in terms of uh, in terms of wines? Um, at Viewpoint, we just tried one wine because we, we didn't try a full flight. And I think it was their Riesling. It was good, but not nearly as good as, in my opinion, as uh, the other wineries that we visited. Oh, right Ooh. on. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, interesting. Man, I, I'm really happy that you give the shout out to Musedre. I mean, it's one of the things a lot of people don't think about is if you look at the geography of the Lake Erie North Shore, it's a little bit further south than even what we get in Niagara. So mm-hmm. the summers get a little bit warmer than in Niagara. So if you're someone who has more of a taste for warmer climate wines, if your go-to is California or Italy, you're still going to get nice balance with acid. But in general, the Lake Erie North Shore gets a little bit more ripeness in their red wine. So when you're looking at things like their Cabernet Sauvignon or Meritage or Syrah that some of the wineries are making out there, um, you're really getting a little bit more of that like overstated, um, I don't want to say like jamminess, but just like, you know, riper fruit flavors, stuff that's a little bit less elegant than what you might find in niagara and i say that in a good way i was just gonna say really quickly that uh the the cool thing was um you know i picked up a little pamphlet for the region they call it epic wine country and you know there was 15 wineries in the region that at least were advertising i'm sure there's some more smaller ones but 
you know, we only visited, you know, almost half of them. So definitely something, especially if you're overnighting, you can realistically visit every single one of these places. Challenge Yeah, accepted. but you're ignoring all the breweries. Oh, yeah, there's oh. more to drink out there. Yeah, yeah, it is interesting because I remember when I went out there years ago, I never actually looked at the geography and... A lot of emerging regions in Ontario outside of Niagara tend to be even more cool climate, even cooler than Prince Edward County, which is already quite cool, right? Like Lake Huron or up in Georgian Bay. So Lake Erie North Shore, it was a diversion from that, which I didn't quite expect. And I I really want to go back now that I have more wine knowledge and just experience it all again. I couldn't agree more. Well, it sounds like Danny jumped the gun on the epic road trip that we were all planning on taking together to Lake Erie North Shore, but that just means that Andre and I are going to have to play catch-up down the line. That sounds great to me. And this has been another episode of Tasting Together, heard Saturdays at 5 o'clock on 640 Toronto. Stick around for next week. Cheers! (laughs) 